Thank you for being here tonight, for braving the storm. This morning we began a series, Life's Important Questions. Questions, important questions. Life's important questions. Biblical questions. This morning we dealt with a question that Elijah asked when he said, How long? How long will you limp, halt, falter, falter? How long will you hesitate between two opinions? And we didn't even scratch the surface of the applications of that question for us as people in the 21st century. There's a lot of things that we can ask. How long? I pray that you'll take that to your to your closet. But the interesting thing for us tonight as we get to the 19th chapter of 1 Kings, the interesting thing for us tonight is that Elijah, God's fiery prophet, asked that question largely to the thousands that were God's people on Mount Carmel. He certainly was not asking the um, false prophets, those 850, because they had already made their decision. They knew who they were following, but it was all these folks who claimed to be followers of Christ that he asked, you know, guys, how long are you going to do this? How long are you going to play this game? How long are you going to try to fit in with the culture and try to be gods? Tonight, the question is not asked by Elijah. The question tonight is asked to Elijah. The guy who did the asking this morning is going to do the answering tonight. That's the way it is with God. Before we get to the Scripture, let me just remind us, most of us know the back story. You know that when he asked that question this morning, uh, how long will you limp or falter or hesitate between two opinions, they were on Mount Carmel, 850 bad guys. The rest of them were people seemingly on the fence because they're supposed to name the name of Christ, and yet they were not doing it. And he asked them that question, and so we had all these folks here. Ahab is the audience. And so he said, here's what let's do. Let's get into this showdown. Here's what let's do. Bring two bulls. You guys get one. We got, I'll get one. We prepare them for our God. And then we'll call on our God, and whichever God responds, he's God. And they agreed, said, that's good. So the false prophets did what they do to their boy, cut him up, put him on the altar, and then they began to scream, chant, pray, holler, whatever else. If you look back, if you, if you open to 19, you can go back to 18, and, and here's what it says. It says that, uh, um, that they cried upon, uh, called upon the name of Baal, verse 26, from morning until noon. Baal, old Baal answered us. And they limped around the altar. Elijah, being the deeply spiritual man he was, began to make fun of them. And I won't go into this because you'll be offended if you really, if you really dug into this. Verse 27, either he is amusing, he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Well, the further they got along in crying out to their God, the more desperate they became, and so like was their custom, they would even cut themselves. And the Bible tells us that they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as the midday passed, they raved on until the time 
of the offering. May I just pause here to make a point? In our modern-day culture, there are people that are trying to suck us into the theology that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Right here, we see 850 false prophets. Would you agree? You can give me a nod or an amen. Would you agree that if you're passionate enough, if you're sincere enough to cut yourself for a belief system, you must be pretty sincere? Could I get an amen? And yet... And yet, the saddest part of this story is found at the end of verse 29, chapter 18, where it says, There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. You know, it's interesting that when we give ourselves to the concepts, the thoughts, and the beliefs of this world, that there's no one out there who... Here's no one who cares because like to them, there was no God to listen. Just a piece of wood. Well, those guys get done and Elijah takes center stage. Now it's his turn. It tells us that he repaired the altar. That's really important. That's a whole message in itself. He repaired the altar. He cut his bull into pieces and he put it on the altar And then he poured some gasoline on it because he knew if God was going to make it burn, God was going to need some help. Is that what he did? Actually, no. Actually, he did the opposite. Remember, this was pretty serious stuff. They were already in a three-year drought, and he took some of that precious water, and he drowned that sacrifice. And when he drowned the sacrifice, watch this. This was not one of those long King James prayers that goes on for 30 or 45 minutes in public. He simply bowed his knee and he said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Well, you know what happened. You read the Bible story. The fire fell. The altar was consumed. The water was uh, um, evaporated under the fire because when the fire of God falls, it happens just like that. Now then. Elijah just told those 800 prophets of Baal, boys, you know, it's okay. You know, y'all just made a mistake, so now y'all come on in. Is that what happened? No. You know what he did? You can read the end of the chapter. He gathered all up all of those false prophets, and he killed them. And you say, why? Let me tell you what that's a picture of. That is a picture of when we discover sin in our lives, we should be relentless and merciless in getting rid of it. Because if you leave a little dab of sin in your life, it'll work like a cancer. And it will eat you up from the inside out. So, Elijah's now, he's King Cheese. God's responded. The altar was vindicated. His ministry was vindicated by an act of Jehovah God. They got rid of the prophet. So, man, that's great, isn't it? I mean, he should be fired up, pumped up, ready to go, right? Not so fast. 
Because, you see, King Ahab had been watching the happenings there. And as soon as Elijah killed the prophets, those false prophets, Mr. Henpecked himself, Mr. Weak King, went back to the wicked queen and reported all that he had done. You see... He was a weak king with a wicked queen, but I'm going to tell you this. That wicked queen had no weakness in her. And she sent word to Elijah and said this. By this time tomorrow, you're going to be dead. By this time tomorrow, I'm going to see to it that you're dead. And listen, you remember, this is the number two person. At the risk of being sounding sacrilegious, this is the Joe Biden of Israel. <laughs> so what did he do? He ran into the wilderness hard as he could. And when he got into the wilderness, he, he was fatigued. He was deprived of food, probably deprived of water. And quite likely from me reading the story, he probably at that point was depressed. So God sent a messenger to him and told him to eat. Because you see, the very first thing that you need to do when you get depressed, when you get run down, is take care of the physical. And after he got him ready to go, God sent him on a 40-day hike about 100 miles south. He ran down there to a mount called Horeb. It's considered the mount of God, and he went and he climbed into a cave to hide. And so now God comes to him. And he asked him a question. Now, didn't you always hate it when your mom or your dad asked you the same question twice? Didn't you hate that? Because you knew you were in trouble. Don't punch him. He knows. Picking up in chapter 19 at verse 9, there he, Elijah, there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I... Even I only am left, and they seek to take my life to take it away. And he, God, said to him, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. For this next phrase I love. And behold, the Lord passed by. Man. Wouldn't you like to have been there when the Lord passed by? But you know, like Elijah, many times we miss it because watch what goes on. The Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore through the mountains and broke in pieces the rock before the Lord. Ah, I mean, think about it. The wind is blowing. God's got to be here now. But it says, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, 
the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Father, I pray for the next moments. I pray that we will deal in our hearts with that which you've come to call us to deal with. A question that permeates our soul. Lord, I pray for your divine divine anointing. I pray for your divine spirit. I pray for divine conviction. And I pray for divine direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's review those verses. Verse 9, when he asked the question, it's just a simple and straightforward question. And yet I think, as I read this, I think Elijah was kind of expecting God to ask him that. Elijah knew God pretty good because, because he immediately spit out that story. Now, here's what I want to tell you. Rarely does a person tell a story accurately. I have done enough marriage counseling to know when somebody comes and tells me how horrible their wife is and how difficult their husband happens to be, I know that I'm only getting one half of the story. Hello? Somebody comes and tells you something, they slanted it to make them look the best in the world. Elijah did this. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, of ho- the, Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your alt- killed your sword. That might have been right. And I, even I, am the only one left. You know, I think he took a great deal of liberty and built himself up in front of God. And you know what God did? What he always does to us when he wants to take us down a notch. Verse 11 and 12, God gave him a fresh encounter of the holiness and the righteousness and the justice and the judgment and the power of Almighty God. Now, it's just, it's just interesting to me because less than six weeks earlier, he saw God, Jehovah God, send fire from heaven. Does that tell us how hard-headed we are or can be? Does that tell us how forgetful we can be when God is up to something and doing something? You see, the God was not in the wind. The earthquake. Shook him. We talked about that. Shook him to get his attention. But he was not in the earthquake. Fire! I'm reminded of Pentecost. But he was not in fire. And then he whispered. Thursday night at deacons meeting, I shared with the deacons, by the time when Rick Stanley was at a uh, Scott Dawson student conference, David, and there were about about 1,500, 2,000 students there, and it it was chaos the whole time. People got up to speak. New song got up to sing. It didn't matter what happened. The roar never went down. And Rick Stanley stepped to the microphone, and instead of trying to shout over him like everybody else had done, he got up and he began to whisper. And the more he whispered, the quieter the crowd became. All of a sudden, the teenagers were paying attention. After it was over, I said, Rick, that was ingenious, man. And he said, no, he said, it's uh, idiocy to stand up and try to outshout teenagers. You can't do it. He said, either they were going to listen or I was just going to talk to myself. 
You see, the, the deal is, is that God now had Elijah's attention, so he spoke to him. And now Elijah was ready to hear the question. Now he was ready to respond to the question. Now he was ready to absorb the question. And this question for us tonight, what are you doing here? Has four chairs, if you want four legs, if you want to say you're a stool, four pillars, if you want to say you're a building, four thoughts that help us to know that God was speaking to us. First is that I want you to see that this is a pointed question. He begins with the word, what? <laughs> Have you ever thought about how many ways that word is used, what? I know, I know today it's going to whatever, but what? What? I mean, I mean it's used from disbelief to discovery. It's used from exclamation to expectation. It's, mo- it's used from suspicion to sincerity. In this verse, we hear God asking Elijah, I want just a little bit of clarification, Elijah. What? What? And here's the payoff. When God asks us what, when God asks you what, he already knows the answer. When he asks you what, he's not asking so you can tell him what's going on. He's asking you so that you can hear yourself say it out loud. But you look, at, you look at Elijah, he wanted a little real realization to come to Elijah because Elijah was on the mountain having a pity party. I mean, think about it. When he stopped out in the wilderness after one day, he said, Lord, just take my life. I want to die. And he lied. You say, how do you know he lied? Because if he had really wanted to die, all he had to do is stay in Israel, and Jezebel would have obliged him. He was out there having a pity party, and, and God wanted to pull him out of his funk, if you will, and bring him back to reality. I mean, think about it. And this, comes, this happens a lot. After the greatest victories in our lives come our greatest time of depression. And Elijah ran away. When the cheese got binding, Elijah ran away. You know, and when he asked the question in, in verse 9, Elijah spit that out just very quickly about his pitiful conditioning. And God comes back after he kind of gives him a little reality check. And he said, now what? It's pointed. Second thing that we need to know is it's personal. What are you? Now, can I say, make that personal to us? What are you? God asked, what are you? You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of when Jesus was on the mount in Caesarea Philippi with his disciples. And he said, what do people say that, who do people say that I am? And they kind of kicked rocks and kicked around the bush, and finally Jesus said, okay, what do you say? What do you say? You see, it, the truth is, it's more than a little interesting how we are always ready to give an answer for somebody else, how they're doing, how bad they are. I, I, mean, I mean, we're just being honest. We're not being mean. Do you know how they are? But when it comes to us, 
we got everything going. I mean, I mean, we we do this right. We can tell you other people's faults and flaws and failures quickly. That preacher, he don't do this. That deacon, they don't think like that. That church, uh, that Sunday school teacher, they don't do what they're supposed to. That committee, that team, they don't do what they're supposed to. Now I just want to give you a little. I want to give you a little heads up tonight. Don't insult you. I just want you to know that God rarely comes to you and asks you about somebody else. Hello? He rarely comes to you and says, well, how's Whitney doing? Or how's Troy doing? Or how's Wendell doing? How's Michael doing? Well, I said that one time. He said, Michael, who? No, I'm teasing Mike. You see, God rarely comes to us and asks us about somebody else. You see, He comes to us and asks us personal questions, and that personal question that He asks us demands a personal answer, and it speaks to us, are you listening, of our accountability to Him. God asked Elijah this first, the question the first time, and Elijah's ready with the answer. I'm the only one left. It's all about me. I'm the one who's holding the bag. I'm the one who's holding the church together. I'm the one who's holding the country together. I'm the one who's holding the country together. Without me, what would they be? When I read this, I wonder how many people have adopted that attitude of Elijah. I remind you that he had that attitude kind of sharp. Before his fresh encounter with God. I wonder how often God allows us, that when we have that attitude, that God allows us to literally crawl into a cave and crash and burn before he speaks to us. Before he tries to restore us. He's not going to restore us in our pride. He's going to restore us personally. In our submission. The question is both pointed and personal. Pointed what? Personal or you? Then it's a practical question. What are you doing? When I read this, I think God's just kind of tightening the noose around old Elijah's neck. What are you doing, Elijah? Again... God didn't need to hear from Elijah to know what Elijah was doing because God knew it very clearly. Elijah was hiding in a cave. Elijah was was running from uh, uh, Jezebel. You know, I got to thinking about this. Can you think of any time when God has called people to hide in a cave? I do know that when Moses was born, that when they hid him in the bulrushes, that was of God. I do know that when the spies went into the land of promise and... uh, They were about to get discovered, and Rahab protected them. I know that was of God. But I'm talking about how many times does God call us to hide from the very thing that he's called us to? You see, instead of the doing God calls us to, many times we are holed up and hiding out away from the work that he's called us to. And if you can think about it and let your mind run, the impact is far-reaching. If God's people in the United States of America in the 21st century 
are doing what Elijah did and running and hiding in the cave, is it any wonder that our community, that our culture, that our country, that even churches are losing the light of the gospel? You see, he's not called us to hide in the cave. Occasionally we have to retreat and and refresh and regroup and get revived. But this word doing, what are you doing? It's an active word. It is a word that, that, that calls us to action. What are you doing for Christ? What are you doing for Christ? What are you doing to reach the next generation? What are you doing to reach the next generation? What are you doing to show God's love to a loveless world? What are you doing to show God's forgiveness to a sin-sick world? The question is practical. Something that we can be doing. By the way, and I'll get to this in just a second too, but we have to, as a church, talked about it in deacons' meeting, one of the most engaging deacons' meetings that we've had in a while, we have to cast our gaze not behind us where we've been. We need to cast our gaze on what's ahead of us. And we need to cast our gaze on the next generation. We need to put our focus on the next generation. Practical, what are you doing? But then there's one more part of this question. And it's a precise question. It's a precise question. What are you doing here? Again, I've said that the first time this question was asked, that Elijah probably spit out that answer pretty quick. He'd been probably rehearsing that answer because he probably knew God was coming to see him. However, now that he's had this fresh encounter with God and God asked him the same question again. By the way, it seems to me that God is in a habit of, of speaking to us. We give him a bad answer, and then we get a little more of him and a reminder of who he is, and then he comes back he asks us the same question or gives us the same assignment. You want a, a, biblical assignment, a biblical example outside of Elijah? Jonah. Jonah, go down. Go down to Nineveh. He goes the other direction. He's a human. When the fish spit him out, what did God say? Okay, I'm going to repeat myself, and you better do it. Go to Nineveh. You see, God's calling, God's gifts and callings are without repentance. You know, the reason that I think this question is so precise, what are you doing here, is, is because God has shown him himself, and he wants to know exactly, he wants to hear exactly, what Elijah has to say about why he's on this mountain, why he's in this cave, why he is so far away from his nemesis. You know, wasn't it God had just had misplaced Elijah? Wasn't it God needed a, a GPS uh, location on Elijah? He wasn't even saying, God wasn't even saying, what's a nice guy doing like you doing in a place like this? Here's what he's saying. He's saying, Elijah, why have you chosen to be in this place? Why have you chosen to come here? Why have you made this choice? Listen, I can tell you why Elijah was here. He never fessed up to it. He's afraid. 
He is afraid of the queen. Wicked queen. Did I say she is wicked? He is afraid for his life, and he ran away. But to his credit, he ran to the right place. Too many of us, when we get into struggle, we run to the wrong place. A marriage is on the rocks. First thing they drop out of is church. First thing they drop out of is their Christian couples who can offer help. Finances go down. The first thing we do is turn our back on God. Families fall apart. The list goes on and on. And and what Elijah did, he did run to the mountain of God, to the holy place, and he ran into this cave. Now, I don't suggest you go to a cave, but I'm going to tell you that in the mountain of God, that cave became a refuge. It became a place of safety. It became a place of security. And if you're going to run... Don't run to the world. Run to the Lord. If you're going to run away, run where you can find help, hope, safety, peace, happiness, security, and a renewed sense of purpose. Elijah, what are you doing here? Christian, what are you doing here? Are you getting revived? Are you getting restored? Are you getting renewed? Are you getting refreshed? You see, here's why when we run away from God that we better be getting one of those things. We better be where he is, listening to him, because when God comes to us and speaks to us, just like here with Elijah, God always comes to us to call us back, and he's always got a mission in mind for us. Oh, it may not be a big public stand in front of people mission. It may be simply a mission that the person in the desk next to you or in the house next to you or in the car next to you need a word of gospel from you. I mean, that's what happened with Elijah. I mean, he, he focused on Elijah. This was, why are you here? And I still got stuff for you to do. I still got something for you to do. And watch this. I just mentioned the next generation. He, he wanted Elijah to set forth the next generation. Here's where we've got to cast our gaze. If you've got your Bibles open, you can hear it. He says, and the Lord said to him, verse 15, go return, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, watch this, you shall anoint Haziel to be the king of Israel, uh, Syria, next generation. Get the next generation ready, but he's not finished. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall appoint to be king over Israel. Wow. Two countries, next generation, setting the course for us. And then he says, and you'll anoint Elisha, the son of Shethat, of Abimelech, excuse me, Abimelech, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. You see, Elijah, like us, had to cast his gaze on the mission God called him to have, which is the mission of the next generation. I hate to say it, most churches today are not focused on the mission of the next generation. We're focused on the mission of the generation past. And we still keep holding our breaths, hoping the 70s or the 50s or sometime we'll come back. And we'll be in our glory days again. I believe it was, uh, um, <clears throat> could have been Chuck Lawless. 
But I think it was Tom Rayner that did a church consult out in Texas. And they couldn't figure out why they were losing attendance, why they weren't reaching people anymore. The year was about 98, 99. And they went out there and uh, he said it was a perfect church with perfect facilities, with perfect programs, with perfect everything for a church in 1948. And they sat around the table, and he said, well, if you really, this, this was his job, consult, how to get them, how to change the trend around. He said, well, if you want to change, if you want to do this, it's going to be painful. And he gave them a list of things to do, and they go, we don't think we want to do that. They said, what are our other options? He said, build a fence around it and charge admission like it's a museum. You see, God tells us to cast our gaze forward. He tells us that repeatedly. Teach your, your children when they, by the way, teach them when they sit on your knee, when they're on your lap. Teach them about the law of God. By the way, when, when God gave Elijah this assignment, what are you doing here? Here's where I want you to go. I want you to go plant your life about in the next generation. And then down in verse 18, he says, hey, guess what? Everybody didn't abandon me. There's still 7,000 in Israel. And I'm going to connect you to this army. And when we get on, we'll figure out what we're doing here. We'll figure out the questions. And we'll figure out to respond to the Lord and do what he's called us to do. You know what? He'll connect us into an army that would keep faith. And we'll keep faith. And we'll expand the kingdom of God. What are you doing here? Have you, have you dealt with that? Why are you here? Watch this. Learn, this. learn this in theater. What are you doing here? Watch the emphasis. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing here? What are you doing? That sounds like my mom. What are you doing And what are you doing? This is the question for us. What are you doing here? You know, the United States of America is a great place to live. It's both a blessing and a curse. The blessings are so apparent. We have everything we need and most of what we want. But the curse, which is not so apparent to many, should be apparent to us. And here it is. It is that the light of the gospel and the truth of our Lord Jesus seems to be growing dim. I'm not a a real intelligent person. But I know that when you have a, a lamp, which is what we're called in the Bible, that light, that lamp begins to grow dim when the oil begins to get low. And I wonder, I wonder if what we are doing here is so insignificant to the kingdom that the oil is about to run out in our country. Not just our country, 
our community, church. For you see, could it be, I'm just asking the question, could it be that the flame is going out because the keepers of the flame are not replenishing the oil by being connected to the source of the oil? Our calling, our question, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? There's so much to be done. There's a generation to be won. What is your part? What is our part? I will tell you that one of the things that we're talking about in Deacon's meeting, we don't have it all fleshed out, is the redirection of our church focus. I heard this. Some of you will know this name. He's Ed Young. He's a pastor for Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. Ed Young went there in 1978, 36 years ago. They ran about 300 in Sunday school then. Today they're on four campuses around Houston, Texas, and they have over 65,000 members. And they baptize. I, I've been there many times, and the least that I, any Sunday I've been there that they baptize have been about eight. God's doing some phenomenal things. We heard him speak Monday night. He said, most of the churches do not have a theological problem. And he's talking to preachers. He said, you preachers, y'all dig in the Word. You want to give an accurate uh, message from God's Word. You want to rightly divide the truth. He said, but really what it is is methodology. He said, most churches are trying to cater to their older generation. He said, we made the decision at Second Baptist. He said, and it's worked for us, as you can see. He said, we're putting our best teachers, our money, our buildings, everything that is the best we have to offer goes to the younger generation. And he made a joke, and he said, we tell the old folks. And he's, Ed's now probably, what, 70, 71. He said, we tell the old folks, we're glad to have you all around. You keep coming, but... And help us invest in the next generation. But I think we need to think about that. Are we going to really invest in the next generation? Michael Catt at Sherwood. I love their sign. You guys remember it? It's big in their um, atrium. It says, whoever wants the next generation the worst will get it. What are we doing to reach the next generation? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you will redirect our thoughts and our life. I pray that you will give us your insight. Give us your, your spirit. Give us your power. Give us your direction. And help us to surrender all and follow you. Father, we need you more than we've ever needed you before. We've lived in this country and we've had it so easy. And now things are turning the wrong direction. I pray that for us and this place, I pray that we can be your light. So that if you come and ask us what are we doing here that we can tell you the people that we're reaching, the people we're touching, the people that we're changing, 
with your help. Father, as we sing, I pray that you'll work in hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.